Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. If you are a, a kid here between the ages of kindergarten and second grade and you'd like <clears throat> to go to children's church, or if your parents would like you to go to children's church, you can be dismissed through the door by the piano. Luke chapter 22 is on page 1043. Luke chapter 22. And today uh, we come in Luke, our study through Luke, we finally come to the story of the Last Supper. The night before Jesus is crucified, He has the Last Supper meal with His disciples. And we're looking at that story in Luke 22. And even though it, it starts in verse 7, we're actually going to study verses 24 to 30 this morning. And then next week I'll go back and cover verses 7 to 23. Because 7 to 23 is about the, the institution of the Lord's Supper itself. And next Sunday is Communion Sunday in our church. So I thought it might be really fitting to study the Lord's Supper on Communion Sunday. So we're kind of juggling the order around a little bit. But... Let me just read verses 7 to 30 just so we have the whole context and then we'll, we'll dig into verses 24 to 30. So here's, starting in verse 7, Luke chapter 22. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. Where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, As you enter the city, <clears throat> a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters and say to the owner of that house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you. Before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of Him who is going to betray Me is with Me, with Mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays Him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And we'll stop there. 
about a month ago, I read this article in the Wall Street Journal. It was talking about the problem of praise inflation in the workplace. And it was sort of reflecting on how uh, over the last couple of decades, there's been a heavy emphasis with children on um, self-esteem, building up children's self-esteem. You know this whole thing where everybody is student of the month and everyone on the soccer team gets a trophy no matter how the teams do or how they did it. You know this whole thing. And I, I, I think I've told you this before. In my daughter's school, the guidance counselor actually comes into the classrooms, teaches the kids to grab hold of their knees, and she says, hug yourself tight, and I want everyone to say, I love myself. And, and so they, I, I kid you not, they, they're taught to do this. And we you know, laugh about it with my daughter and you know, let her know that she's not the most important one in the world, that, there's, that God is even more important. But, but as this self-esteem emphasis has come home to roost, and as the self-esteem generation has moved into the workplace, it's sort of caused some troubles. And let me just read to you from the article. It, it cracked me up. It says, now as this greatest generation <clears throat> grows up, the culture of praise is reaching deeply into the adult world. Bosses, professors, and mates are feeling the need to lavish praise on young adults or else see them wither under an unfamiliar compliment deficit. Employers are dishing out kudos for workers for little more than showing up. Corporations, including Land's End and Bank of America, are hiring consultants to teach managers how to compliment employees using email, prize packages, and public displays of affection. This is my favorite one. The Thousand Employees Scooter Store, Inc., a company in Texas, has a staff celebrations assistant whose job it is to throw confetti, 25 pounds a week, at employees. She also uh, passes out 100 to 500 celebratory helium balloons a week. So, so I guess I have a new job for Seth. That's great. <clears throat> it's this, this whole idea of, you know, you're the greatest, you're wonderful. I, I mean, I, I think there's a kernel of truth in the whole self-esteem thing in that, you know, we're not supposed to hate ourselves and go around, I'm the worst, I'm a loser. But the problem with the whole self-esteem thing is we already love ourselves. It's called pride. <laughs> We're sinful people with, with a preoccupation with ourselves. And so if you feed someone all the time growing up, you're the best, you're the greatest, you're wonderful, you're awesome, you're the greatest. You know, we, we say, oh, I guess I am. I, th I thought I was. And well, you've confirmed it. Thank you. And, and so rather than raising self-confident people, I think what you end up raising are narcissists. And, and, and that's, that's a danger, I think, in our whole culture in general. And it's not just us. This is the human condition. And it's so amazing that we see it here in this story. At the story of the Last Supper, look at uh, verse 24. It says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. At the Lord's Supper, they're fighting about this. The first one. After three years with Jesus, hanging out with Him, listening to His teachings, seeing the way He operates, and now they're in the Last Supper. It's less than 24 hours until Christ will go to the cross and be sacrificed. He's giving of Himself. And, and in that sacred moment, immortalized by da Vinci on, uh, in the Sistine Chapel with the painting of the Last Supper, this amazing moment where the disciples get to be in the presence of Jesus at the very first Lord's Supper that will be commemorated for millennia following among all Christian groups. At that sacred moment, they're fighting over who gets to be the greatest. Can you believe it? I could just imagine Peter saying, well, he did say 
that on this rock, this Petra, he will build his church. And John says, well, then again, I am the beloved disciple, aren't I? And I notice I'm leaning against Jesus' chest here. I have this place. It's like they're bickering over who gets to be the greatest. Uh, you know, maybe Da Vinci's painting should have been Jesus sitting at the table and all the disciples like in a corner fighting, you know, in a big pile over who gets to be the greatest. And so rather than being a flock of, of sheep, they're more like a flock of hens, you know, setting up the pecking order, a flock of peacocks with their feathers, you know, ruffled out and strutting around. And, and you know, it's easy to poke fun at them. And, but I realize this is us. We are the same way. I, I see myself so clearly reflected in the disciples. I'm so glad the disciples are in the story because I so often you know, find myself uh, reflected in, in their behavior. And so in the same way, you know, we get so full of ourselves and caught up with ourselves and we want people to think that we're the greatest, that our ideas are the best, our opinions are the best, our way of doing things is the best, our way of parenting is the best, our way of cooking is the best. And, and you know, whatever it is, we, we want to show ourselves as better than others. And we do it subtly. I mean, we don't go around just saying, I'm the greatest. We, we drop subtle things. Like someone will say, how was your weekend? We'll say, oh, it was good. You know, we, we took the boat down to Martha's Vineyard. You know, I have a house down there. And, uh, you know, and, and one in Nantucket, too. And, yeah, we were down there. And I was talking to my grandson on the phone this week. He, I mean, he lives nearby. He, he's actually going to Harvard and um, on a full-ride academic scholarship. And he's up there. And, you know, we just kind of... Drop little subtle hints to let people know where we stand in the pecking order of life. Conspicuous consumption, conspicuous mention of conspicuous consumption to, to let people know that. And it's even in the church. I think sometimes especially in the church because we get so proud of ourselves and our morality. Uh, there's this caricature of Christians being self-righteous, holier than thou. And there's a reason that caricature exists is because it really does happen. You know, we say, well, I don't do that. You know, I'm a Christian. I don't behave in that way. And oh, I'm not that. Look at all those people who do those things and I don't do those. And, you know, we forget that we're sinners saved by grace, not by works. And we start to think that it's our moral condition that makes us great, even though it was God who brought us to that place. <clears throat> and so it's easy to kind of look down our noses at other people and, and be full of ourselves. I like what Ben Franklin said. Benjamin Franklin said, there is perhaps no one of our natural passions so hard to subdue as pride. Beat it down, stifle it, mortify it as much as one pleases. It is still alive. Even if I could conceive that I had completely overcome pride, I should probably be proud of my humility. <laughs> as soon as I start thinking, you know, pride is an interesting sin because it attacks our strengths, not our weaknesses. Isn't that interesting? It's just a little different. And it's true. Uh, no one likes it. It's an ugly thing, but we're so full of it. It's true that pride is the one disease that makes everybody sick, except for the one who has it. Uh, it's just an offensive kind of thing. And, and often, it's even in the church, even among Christians, we can find ourselves being arrogant, even as we no longer party and we no longer do this and that. We find that we can be filled up with pride about our spiritual uh, condition. Um, I, I had this experience a couple of years ago. I, was, uh, I had this privilege. I was invited to go back and speak at my alma mater, Gordon Conwell Seminary. They had this national preaching conference. And every, year they, every other year they had this conference. And they bring in all these like, big name, famous speakers from around the country. You know, when I was there, it was like Kay Arthur and Haddon Robinson. But they always bring in one seminary graduate to kind of be like the token 
guy, hey, we produced him, and you know, he's a preaching too. And so you know, one of these things is not like the other. So I'm there with all these, <laughs> these big preachers. I was really intimidated. I mean, I was, I was excited and honored to be asked, but I was like, what am I doing there? Uh, you know, and not only am I going to be there with all these kind of headliner sort of people, but all these professors in the audience that I studied under, and I'm going back, and they're going to be critiquing me, and I'm thinking, oh dear. But, but you know what was the biggest challenge of all? The biggest challenge in this whole thing was pride. And it happened when I got the little brochure in the mail, and I opened it up, this nice, beautiful, professionally done, full-color brochure, and opened it up, and there's my picture. And I was like, huh, look at that. <laughs> I look good. <laughs> oh, let me read what it says about me. Oh. And then I went to the website, and I was on the website. I was like, wow, I'm on the web. Maybe I'll Google myself. You know? <laughs> Maybe I'll do it again just to be sure. <laughs> As if I was going on American Idol or something, right? It's like Evangelical Idol. <laughs> yo, 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 dog, that was a great sermon, yo. You know? Oh, you're beautiful inside, Jeremy. That was the worst sermon I've ever heard. <laughs> so so I'm, I'm all getting you know, caught up in my own ego about this. And it's a sacred moment. You know, a preaching conference, at least to me, that's, that's a beautiful thing. Shouldn't the preaching conference be about the authority of God's Word? And shouldn't it be about the greatness of God? And shouldn't the whole purpose of the conference be to glorify God and to edify all of these pastors who are coming so that these pastors go away from the conference charged up about the sufficiency of the Bible? That's why we had the conference. But even in that moment, even in that sacred moment, the sin nature is so strong within us and within me that I had to fight off this urge to start, you know, Pulling out the feathers like a peacock, as if it meant anything. Hey, people, God spoke his message through Balaam's donkey. Right? He said, if you don't praise me, the rocks will cry out. So God will use whatever to preach his word. It, you know, I'm utterly and completely disposable in God's plan. It's just amazing that he would use any of us to do anything. He doesn't need us. The amazing thing is he uses us. But we so easily forget that. We forget that he is God, that we are just vapor that all men are like grass and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. And and it's so easy to forget that and get caught up in ourselves. Even in the church, even in the most sacred of spiritual moments, pride sneaks in. And it especially comes in, I think, when we get into positions of authority and leadership. Notice what Jesus goes on to say in verse 25. He hears these guys bickering and Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them. And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. That's how the world turns, isn't it? People in authority get full of themselves and lord it over others. You would think that being put in a position of prominence would satisfy the desire for self. But all it does is fuels it and makes it greater. And so as it was back then, so it is today. You put someone, a nice person, into a position of power and they become dictatorial. You see them transforming into a Godzilla before your very eyes. You know, and suddenly they're a tyrant ruling over the office place or whatever the position of authority is. Well, he's a real nice guy. Loves to golf with him. But I'll tell you, I wouldn't want to work for him. Right? Because, woo 
Once he gets behind that desk, he turns into somebody or something else. And it happens in the church. Uh, people come into the church and they're nice people and they love the Lord, but you make someone the chairman of a committee or the head of a ministry or an elder or even worse, a pastor, and they suddenly think that they're an autocrat or, or a dictator and they start telling everyone how it should be and you can't question their word because if you question them, you're questioning God and that's how cults start. A, a, a cult, often in a cult, if you study cults, one of the common characteristics is there's typically a person or small group of people at the center who have the answers from God and you cannot question them. And there's an extreme authoritarianism typically at the center of a cult. And, and that's what happens. We get in these positions of power and it goes to our heads. Or notice another way that it manifests itself. Jesus says, those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Now, in those days... Um, Benefaction was a staple of the Roman economy. To understand the economy in Rome, you had to understand slavery, that was one pillar, and the other pillar was benefaction. And the way benefaction worked was uh, people who had authority and wealth and power would give gifts. And it might be a big gift like giving an amphitheater to a city. Or it might be a small gift like paying somebody's way through an education or freeing a slave and helping them get married. Or whatever it was, you would give gifts to people but it was always a gift with strings attached. And so when you gave the gift in the Roman world, the people to whom you gave it were now uh, your beneficiaries and they owed you respect and honor and uh, deference and obedience in some cases. And, and so all of those gifts always had a string attached to them. It was a way of giving so that you could uh, build yourself up and build up your greatness. And it happens in the church. People give gifts and they think that by giving a gift, it therefore means they control the organization. You know, what I was taught was, what I was taught is that when I give a gift to the Lord financially, that it's now the Lord's. <laughs> it's God's. And I don't control it. Now, does that mean that the church should be therefore unaccountable? Of course not. But what it means personally for me is that when I give things to the Lord, they're actually His. And so I need to let go of them and not use them as strings attached to control people or situations and things. And it happens in the church as well. So what's underneath all of this? There's something underneath all of this. There's a sin beneath the sin. And I think what's underneath it all is good old-fashioned self-centeredness. That's what it is is go back to the Garden of Eden. Every sin and everything can always be traced back to the Garden of Eden. There's the paradigm. There's the initial root of it all where the serpent says to Eve, you can be like God. And I think at the root of selfishness is a profound atheism. Well, actually, it's not atheism. It's, it's self-deification. You know, we do believe in God. It's just we believe we're the God. And, and therefore, we're going to try to manipulate our lives and our circumstances. Just as God created the world to reflect His glory, the selfish person begins to try to create and refashion the world around them in order to have it reflect them so that they're at the center of it rather than God being at the center of it. I mean, that's as close to a, a definition of sin as I can give you. Is a rebellion against God in which we seek to kill God and take His place as the center of the universe. And we may not put it in those bold terms, but that's what it is. So that I'm at the center and I'm in control and everything serves me. A preoccupation with self. And it manifests itself in, I've got to be the best, I'm number one, and in, I'm in authority and power and I'm going to 
uh, lord it over people and I'll use my finances or gifts or whatever to manipulate situations and people. Or it comes out in a, you know, a myriad of different ways. And to all of that, look what Jesus says in verse 26. I love verse 26. It's nice and simple so I can understand it. <laughs> verse 26. But you are not to be like that. I got it. <laughs> Real simple. Don't be like that. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot be arrogant, self-centered, and prideful. It goes totally contrary to our Savior and to the kingdom of God. And so once again we see that the values of the kingdom of God run completely 180 degrees contrary to the values of the kingdom of this world. The two are at odds with each other. They view things differently. Up is down and down is up. Right is left and left is right. And dark is light and light is dark when you compare the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. I was thinking about uh, Nietzsche. and uh, you know Nietzsche, if, if anyone espoused the, the philosophy of self-centeredness, it was Nietzsche and his idea of the uberman, the superman, the, the, the self-willed person who was in charge of their own destiny. If anyone epitomized this, the philosophy of this world, it was him who articulated it so clearly and so self-consciously. And he said about Christianity that it was the lowest point in humanity's development because it espoused virtues like humility, self-sacrifice, uh, kindness, meekness, servanthood. He said, no, no. That's just the opposite of where we should be. And so the kingdom of God is always contrary to the kingdom of this world. Jesus says you're not to be like that. Instead, how should we as Christians live? He says the greatest among you should be like the youngest. And in those days, young people had no standing in society. Kids were invisible in those days as far as power was concerned. So the greatest of you should be like an invisible youngster. And the one who rules should be like the one who serves. You should be like the slaves who do the menial tasks around the, uh, the household. Now, what a different approach this is. Humility, servanthood, to have an attitude of putting myself under others and to be a servant. And just so you know, just to be clear, sir, humility does not mean that I hate myself and I'm a loser and I stink and you beat yourself up. I, I think to be humble, you actually have to be strong in some ways. But what humility is, is simply recognizing that he is God and I'm not. That's what humility is. God is God and I am his servant. It's simply seeing ourselves in proper perspective to who God is. And as we do that, we enter into the humility that Christ calls us to and the servanthood. And so this is really, in some ways, the, the crowning Christian virtue. If at the root of all sin is pride, then at the root of righteousness must be a humility before God. St. Augustine was once asked what the chief of the Christian virtues is. He said, humility. Someone said, well, what's the second most important virtue? He said, humility. And the third most important virtue is humility. <laughs> that we would humble ourselves before God and before one another and be servants. Even in positions of authority. I found this very interesting. Look at verse 26. See what you make of this. What I saw there in verse 26 is that Jesus was not denying authority structures in the church or among the people of God even. He was simply saying how they're supposed to operate. Look at verse 26. He says, The greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. And so there are positions of authority. There, are, there is leadership even in the body of Christ. The difference is how it's to be carried out. So for instance, I was thinking about the family. 
God has created an authority structure in the family. The Bible teaches very clearly. You have parents and they're in authority over children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, the Scriptures say. And in marriage, God calls husbands to be the leaders or the spiritual heads of their family and to lead their wives toward Christ, which is not a very popular notion today, but it's biblical. And it's what the Scripture teaches, that husbands are supposed to lead. And so husbands were called to lead, but what kind of leadership is it? Is it an arrogant, domineering, abusive, belittling leadership? No. It says in Ephesians, Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her to make her holy. And so, biblical leadership is is self-sacrificial, Christ-like, self-crucified leadership for others. It's a giving up of yourself. A radical generosity of yourself toward those to whom you're called to lead. And and if I could just speak to husbands for a minute as as a fellow husband, um, I think this is something that that if we could get this right as husbands in the church, it would transform the church. If if men would learn to step up and lead in their families in this kind of self-sacrificial, loving way, it would transform families, it would transform the church. It would be an amazing thing. I'm not saying you're not. I'm just saying that we need to keep striving for that. Because, you know, when when guys get home from work, if, if you're a working guy and you get home, you know, what's the one thing men want when they get home from work? Silence and food. They want silence. They're hungry and they just want to be alone. They just want quiet. And it's so hard when you walk in the door to have all these kids. And, and the kids don't care how hard your day was. They want dad. And, and your wife needs you too if she's been home or if she's been at work or whatever she's been doing. And you've got to just forget about yourself and forget about your desire just to sit down and watch Sports Center or read the newspaper and just pour yourself out into those kids. Give whatever vapors you have left to your wife and and love them and pour yourselves out into their lives and engage with your children and engage with your spouse. And that's a daily challenge. But that's the kind of self-sacrificial leadership to which Christ calls us. Same thing in the church. In the church, there is a need for self-sacrificial leadership. Um, yes, there are authority structures in the church. It says that He gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers. So there are leaders. But for what? To prepare God's people for works of service. So the whole purpose of being a leader in God's church is so that you can pour yourself out into the rest of the flock and build up the whole church and equip them. The purpose of being a leader in the church is not to be like, well, look at me, now I have this title. You know, I'm chairman of this or I'm on this board. No, no. The higher you get in the church, the lower you need to go. The more you need to serve. As St. Gregory the Great said, ministers should be the servants of the servants of God. I've always loved that phrase. The servants of the servants of God. So you know what kind of elders I want in the church? These are the elders I love. I love the kind of elder who's not only strong enough to make a difficult decision for the church, but is also humble enough when on a Sunday morning the toilet's overflowing in the nursery and there's no one around and the person runs out to the elder and says, the toilet's overflowing! doesn't say, well, you need to call the, the stewardship committee. They just grab a mop and go in and start helping with the toilet. That's the kind of elders that we need. And we need committee chairmen who, who on a snowy day when the snow's coming down and the steps are getting covered, they don't have a problem going out there with a shovel and, you know, standing out there getting some snow on their nice Sunday clothes, just being willing to serve others. 
That's the kind of humility we need in the life of the church. You know what I especially love? I especially love in the church when people apologize for things they've done wrong. That's such a beautiful moment. I think that's when the church is at its best, when there are public apologies being made. There's been a couple times in our business meetings over the last year and a half or so where you know, sometimes you get into a discussion in a business meeting and, and people start getting a little passionate about what they think, and that's part of congregational life. You have to be able to speak your mind. And, and someone may go a little overboard or feel that they went a little overboard. And, and I've seen a couple times in our congregational meetings at the next meeting, somebody will stand up and say, you know, at the last meeting I, I said this or I did that and, and, you know, I may have been a little overboard and I just want to apologize to everybody here for, for what I said. And, you know, when have you ever heard that? When's the last time in your board meetings at work someone, the chairman ever stood up and said, you know, I need to apologize for the way I was last meeting? I think that's such a beautiful thing. And when that happens in committees or elder boards or in church meetings and people... People do that. I, I just think this is so beautiful. It's the church really getting it right in humility. Because here's the thing. We're all going to step on each other's toes. We're all sinners. A bunch of sinners together in one church, they're going to hurt each other. It's, gonna, it's not if, it's when and how. The question is, what do we do with it? And do we come to each other? Do we, do we admit our faults in humility? Are we willing to lay our egos down and say, you know what? I was, you know, whatever. I, I, what I said was wrong or what I did was wrong. It's amazing how God's Holy Spirit works when there is repentance and humility. And that's true for marriages. It's true with your kids. Are you able to say sorry to your kids? Have you ever had to tell your kids you were sorry? Yeah, that hurts. <laughs> that takes a lot of humility. And, you know, I've had to do it once or twice. And uh, it's tough. This is the attitude that Christ wants us to take. And those in leadership need to set the tone and set the pace with humility and gentleness. And and if the leadership of a church will be humble and servant-oriented, I'm telling you that there is so much health and spiritual life that flows through humble leadership in a local church. And it works. It really works. It's amazing how servant attitudes work in a church. It works in life. Some of you have read this book... um, uh, Good to Great by Jim Collins. It's, he's kind of a business guru. He writes these businessy guru books. And, and uh, what Jim Collins did was he studied companies that went from good to great to see what it is that made them great. It was really interesting. And the way he defined that was he looked at companies that had a 15-year track record of sort of average market performance. And then there was some transition, something happened. And then after that, they had a 15-year straight record of operating at three times the market and, and doing even better. So it wasn't just a one-hit wonder sort of thing. And so what he said was, how does the companies go from good to great? How did they make that transition? And he looked for common characteristics. And you know what one of the common characteristics was? Was the CEO and the head leadership had an attitude that was about doing what was best for the whole company and for the people and not for themselves. They had leaders who weren't trying to be CEO rock stars, but who wanted to serve the whole organization. And that was one of the characteristics in all these companies that helped them go from good to great. So, you know, it works. (laughs) Servanthood really works, even in the real world out there, not just in the church. But, of course, we're called to a humble servanthood, not because it works, but because that's the way Jesus operated Because Jesus is our Lord and He humbled Himself. Look at verse 27. For who is greater? The one who is at the table or the one who serves? 
Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. I couldn't help but think of that story in John chapter 13, uh, the Apostle John's version of the Last Supper. And if you actually want to just turn there, turn over a few pages, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, to John chapter 13. John adds this, this amazing, famous story of servanthood at the Last Supper as Jesus served. John chapter 13, verse 2. It says the evening meal, the Passover meal, was being served and the devil had already prompted Judas Iscariot, son of Simon, to betray Jesus. Get this, verse 3. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under His power, that He had come from God and was returning to God. So, now pause right there. If you knew that God had given you all power, what would be the so? (laughs) So, look what He does. So, verse 4, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing and wrapped a towel around his waist. And after that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus is about to do on the cross. He's about to take the station of a servant and to wash us from our sins, to cleanse us from our unrighteousness through his blood. And just as He did that symbolically by washing feet, so He's about to do it on the cross and to wash us from our sins. And so He concludes in verse 12, When He had finished washing their feet, He put His clothes on and returned to His place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call Me Teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. There is authority in in God's kingdom. Verse 14, Now that I, your Lord and Teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. I tell you the truth, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. We're called to humility and service because that's what our Lord and Master has lived out for us. In fact, we're saved through His humility and service. And so if I've been saved from my sins through the humility and service of Christ, how can I then go on to be arrogant and prideful and full of myself? So let me leave you with two questions. Here's your two questions for reflection on the way out the door. Number one, simple question. Have you been washed by Jesus? Have you been washed by Jesus? Have you come to that place in your life where you've come to Him and said, I am a sinner. I'm not good enough. I cannot save myself. I am full of myself. Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me. Are you really a Christian? And I don't mean did you grow up in a church, because anyone can grow up in a church. I'm saying, have you come to Christ yourself? Have you been washed in the blood of Jesus and made cleansed from your sins? Are you sure of that? What's keeping you from Christ? Why not come to Christ and give your life to Him? Have you ever seen anybody like this Jesus that we've read about? Have you ever read of anybody more compelling, more attractive, more amazing, who would be so great and yet would give Himself completely so that we could be saved and welcomed into God's family? What's greater than that? What are you looking for in life that's greater than salvation in Christ? There's nothing. So come to Christ just with whatever faith you have right now. Just cry out to Him and say, Jesus, forgive me. Wash me. Save me. I want to follow You. I don't even have all the answers. I still have all these questions. But I know this, Jesus, that I want You. 
and come to Christ. Be washed by Jesus. And the second question I ask is, for those of us who are Christians, are you washing feet like Jesus? Have you been washed by Jesus? Number two is, are you washing feet like Jesus? Are you, uh, are you caught up in yourself and your needs and your issues and your concerns and your life? Or, or to what extent as a Christian have you learned to pour yourself out for others? And I've got to admit to you, that the thing that most struck me as I studied this passage this week was I was so convicted by God at how profoundly selfish I am in so many ways. How even when I'm doing what God wants me to do, I find myself doing it for the wrong motives and for myself and so that people will approve of me or so that whatever. And so may God help us to be a servant church. Because you know, God is blessing this church. He's doing something great here. and it's, it's wonderful to see. People are coming to know Him. You know, the pews are full and there's finances and there's amazing ministries and people are joining the church and people are going off into the mission field. And, you know, I pinch myself every day. I'm like, do I actually get to work with this church? What an amazing group of people. And I love working here. I love being your pastor in this church. But, you know, there's a danger there. That when we're prospering, I use that word kind of loosely, that we not become full of ourselves and think that, oh, we're something or we have some answer. We don't have an answer. The only answer we have is Jesus. All we have is the Bible. You know, what are you doing in your church? I'm like, I don't know. I just try to stick with this and I pray a lot <laughs> and I should pray more and I just try to love the flock, but it's God who's doing it. And so I think it's really important that, that when a church, and not just our church, but any church, it goes through a time of, and I use again the word loosely, prosperity, it needs to be really careful that it stays humble, that it stays broken before God, and that it sees its mission is to pour itself out. If God has blessed us, that's for one reason, so that we can be a blessing, so that we can pour ourselves out as a church to the poor and to those who are in need and that we can help other churches and we can help start churches. We, we need to take whatever God, blessings God's giving us and just keep pushing it out into the world and giving it away because that's why He blesses so that we can be a blessing for Him. And so may God continue to bless you and bless us and may we in turn be humble servants who pour out ourselves for the world so that when the, the world sees us, they don't see success. They see Jesus. They see Jesus through us. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we humble ourselves before You because You alone are God. Lord, we are nothing. Our church is nothing. Our wealth is nothing. Lord, we are just Your servants, saved by grace. And Lord, we are just amazed that You, our God, would die for us as we sang in that hymn. What amazing love. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be so captivated by Your grace and Your kindness that we would be humbled and that we would desire to give our lives away knowing that the more we give, the more You bless, Lord. And so there's no way we can outgive You. And God, I pray that our church would be a humble church. I pray that it would be a, a servant church. That it would be uh, known for its humility, for its generosity. God, I pray for uh, those in this congregation who don't know You. Lord, I pray, Jesus, that You would show them Your greatness. That they would yearn to be washed by You, Jesus, so that they could enter into the Kingdom of God. And so, Lord, make us a church that reflects Jesus' glory and not our own. And I pray this in His name. Amen.
Well, as we close in this song, what wondrous, or excuse me, when I survey the wondrous cross, let's once again look at the greatest example of humility and sacrifice. Would you?